I was reminded last night as we finished um, just a family game in our house around our table. And our littlest one brought a little children's adaptation of Pilgrim's Progress to me. Um, and said, Daddy, will you read it? And it just reminded me of that great story. John Bunyan wrote centuries ago somewhat of an allegory, a parable of the Christian life, and that's what we know today as the Pilgrim's Progress. It was about a pilgrim by the name of Christian, who because of a burden upon his back, he abandoned everything and sets out on a journey to alleviate that burden and hence to travel to what he notes or terms the celestial city we know of none other as the eternal state. When you read the book, you read on many accounts um, what some might term a, or identify as a terrible life, a difficult journey, a life of hardship, which is why many of his companions in the book actually turn back. They're not willing to make the sacrifice and endure the pain. And in it, we're reminded of the nature of the Christian life in somewhat of a parabolic, allegorical type of, of manner story that is truly helpful if you've not read. I would encourage all of you to read at some point in your life. Um, probably outside the Bible, Spurgeon's favorite book. Read it over a hundred times, if I'm, I'm correct, throughout his life. Just a constant visual picture of our journey through this life. Um, but it is important to note that it is a life of hardship and difficulty. It's a life, um, no doubt, of pursuit, even unto death. As we read that last night, just um, in my recliner with the kids around, I was reminded of Christian's final leg of the journey that I want to read to you as an excerpt now. Um, at the end of the book, he's there before the celestial city, but before the celestial city, um, he encounters a river, a river that we know of as death. Um, he must cross the river with his friend named Hopeful um, before. There's no bridge in sight on the other side, there are people or, or entities there, angels, to um, welcome them into that eternal state. But before they enter into the waters, John Bunyan writes this. The pilgrims, speaking of both of them, especially Christian, he says, began to despond in their minds. And they looked this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the man if the waters were of all of a depth. They said no. Yet they could not help them in that case. For said they, quote, You shall find it despair or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. And they then addressed themselves to the water. And entering, Christian began to sink. Crying out to his good friend, hopeful, he said, I sink in the deep waters. The billows go over my head and his waves go over me. And then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel that bottom, and it is good. And then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. Also here he, in great measure, lost his senses, so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of the pilgrimage. But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and hearty fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in that he should die in that river, never obtaining entrance in the gate. 
Here also, as they, as they that stood by perceived, he was much in troublesome thoughts of his sins, and he had com- that he had committed both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits. Forever and anon, he would intimate so much by words hopeful. Therefore, here he had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down. And then ere a while he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful also would endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate, and men standing by it to receive us. But Christian would answer, Tis you, tis you they wait for. You have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so you and so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, and he, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me, but for my sins. He hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then said Hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it said of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. That was a quote from Psalm 73 verses 4 and 5. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you but are sent to try you, whether you will call to mind that which herefore too have received of His goodness, and live upon Him in your distresses. And then I saw in my dream Christian, was in a muse a while, to whom also hopeful added his, this word, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see Him again. And He tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And what you see there is a parable of these two men. One who, even in the last moments of his life, is privy to despair. despair, Even though his entire journey before then was a journey of perseverance. And in some sense shows us the fragility of the Christian life and the fragility of even those that are in Christ, such that he needed hopeful, a faithful brother to call to remembrance Christ um, in his deepest despair to look on beyond the shore for that great prize. That, that, That John Bunyan, that faithful expositor, that faithful preacher, that faithful pastor, and that faithful brother in Christ, Um, outlines for us in that entire narrative of the Pilgrim's Progress, insofar as he can as a finite creature, um, the nature of the Christian life, that it is a pursuit of Christ. And it is even a pursuit of Christ, um, even unto death. And I think that when we come to Philippians chapter number 3, that in not so many words, the Apostle Paul will, in a compact form, to um, give us the Christian life in just somewhat of a composite form in these verses as a pursuit of Christ. And maybe you'll even see some parallels as we draw out the truths this morning of the Christian life to what John Bunyan would write for us um, in that narrative. So this morning, I want to give you Paul's words as he continues this thought that we've left off last week. As he continues it, he's going to finish up um, this Particular thought that began in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 3. As Paul gives his testimony, he has given a testimony that he has abandoned 
Um, everything in him that would give him any hope of stature before Christ, and he clings to Christ alone. And in, why? For the righteousness of God by faith, um, that, that, that he may attain to a righteousness that is not his own. He is clinging to Christ for that. He's looking to him in the fellowship of his sufferings for the power of the, and the power of his resurrection to fellowship with him and even unto that great day which he will be made um, totally like him. Um, Paul is now wrapped up in the glory of the gospel. And what he's going to give for us in verses 12 through 16 is an exhortation. If that be the case, church, then run after him. Even in your discouragement, in your despair, take your eyes off of everything else and put them on Christ. So I'm going to give you this morning six of those characteristics of um, faithfulness in this race that we call the Christian life. Paul gives us six aspects, maybe more. In my understanding, I want to give you six this morning for running the race of the Christian life with a faithfulness in that race that we call and the Christian life. Number one in verse 12 in the first portion. Paul tells us that the, that the run or the race that we run. Um, as he gives us this illustration. Of a man running or a, uh, in the Greek games. Um, he's first going to preface that with the reality. That the, the, the Christian race. The Christian life um, is a pursuit. But it is a purifying pursuit. Number one it is a purifying pursuit. And all of the. All of the um, points will have that term pursuit in them. And we'll qualify that with, a, with an adjective. That, that, that Paul's pursuit was a purifying pursuit. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 we read. Not that I have already attained. Or am already perfected. Verse 13 he will say brethren I do not count myself to have apprehended. It may be that he's launching off of verse number 11 where he says um, that if it by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is clear that Paul's understanding of the Christian life and his in particular was one of what we might call progressive sanctification. Paul was clear. He did not, he believed, yes, that one day he would be absolutely or he would achieve an absolute purity as he stood face to face with God himself in Christ. But he also understood that that would not be a reality in this life. That, God, that in God's design for the Christian, he would devise it in such a way that the believer would progressively grow more and more into the conformity of the likeness of Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, duh, like we all know that. <laughs> you know, we didn't expect Paul to say anything different. And maybe not, but maybe those at Philippi did. Um, or at the very least, appears that, to have some false teaching coming down the pike at Philippi, possibly the Judaizers, who had this idea of a sinless perfection. Meaning that they believed that a Christian could attain to a state of absolute and ultimate purity in this life. And I think it's clear in the context that's the way that I would lean, um, that understanding. But also Galatians chapter 3. Paul, too, in Galatians is dealing with a church or churches filled with Judaizers. Boys and girls, you remember that the Judaizers are those who are attaching the elements of the law to the Christian faith, arguing that without those things, along with belief, faith alone in Christ, that you cannot be saved. So you must be circumcised. You can believe in Jesus Christ, but believing in Jesus Christ is not sufficient alone. You must, too, be circumcised. You must, too, take upon yourself um, all the accounts of the law. 
Um, the, church at Gal- the churches in Galatia were, were just uh, inundated with this type of false teaching. And you read that in Galatians 3.1 when Paul just rebukes those that are in Galatia. He says, oh foolish Galatians. And he's talking to the church here who had embraced the false gospel. He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? He goes on um, with more of a correction. And in verse 3 he says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit... Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That in a real sense, they believed that that according to their keeping of the law, they could perfect themselves to such an extent that they could stand righteous before God. Thus, there is this righteousness that is attained in this life that they could become um, totally perfect. You may say that sounds crazy. That's because in our Protestant type of tradition, that's unheard of. But throughout church history, this has not been an anomaly. You know, John Wesley taught a portion or a version of this. He termed it entire sanctification. You know what Paul does? Paul comes out of the gate swinging with an argument 100% against such any notion. With a high level of humility, Paul models for us um, a proper understanding of the Christian life. He examines himself and in the simplest terms. He says, look guys, I'm not perfect and I'm not going to be until I see Christ face to face. That there is a perfection to be obtained. And there is in some sense a perfection that we have even in this moment. We are new creatures in Christ. We have new hearts in Christ. We have new minds in Christ that can be conformed to His image. We have been united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. We have been forgiven legally, uh, forensically justified and given to, accounted to us a righteousness that is not our own. Yet at the same time, there is this tension with the believer knowing that these realities are true of us, that we were even seated now in heavenly places, yet at the same time, we know that we are, are this side of eternity um, struggling and wrestling with the imperfections of the fallen nature. Paul may say, yes, I understand all of that, and there's a perfect element to my life in Christ, yet I am not yet perfected in the ultimate sense, and for this I wait. I wait and I wait and I wait. And you can see, in regard to the race that we call the Christian life, I hope, and how this could be somewhat of a danger to believe. There's a danger for these people. Why? Because if they believe that, um, you generally fail to actually run the race. Um, to stop. You, you, the, the failure in, in most of those people is that they stop striving after Christ. They stop growing. Why? Because there is no need. They're already perfect. After all, if you've already crossed the finish line, what is there a need to run? People who think they've reached a state of perfection will no doubt not give themselves to pursuing sanctification, mortifying sin, fighting the good fight. They'll become complacent, content, deceiving themselves, relaxed and lethargic in areas of mortifying their sin and running to Christ. You know, with a deep irony, the conviction of such ideas really only catapult people deeper into sin. That's interesting. I wouldn't have believed it before I saw it. But the the very limited number of people that I've I've ran into that actually believe in sinless perfection are the most vile people I've ever met. They're the most godless. Um, Why? Because because they they refuse to believe that there is a sin nature that rests within them. So when you bring up something in their life and you say, well, what about that sin? They, They say, well, that's not sin. That's a mistake. That's a this. That's a that. Whatever you want to term it. And they become as godless 
um, as those that are even liberal outside who, who abandon sin altogether. In some sense, and it's anecdotal, there may be some out there that are truly striving after perfection. And if they are, then I say, amen, but you're inconsistent. Um, that, that if you are sinlessly perfect, you recognize no sin in your life. Therefore, there is nothing to abandon. There is no sacrifice to be made. There is no uh, sin to be killed in their lives. And thus, they, they make occasion for the sin of their life. And it leads to some of the most godlessness that I've ever seen in anyone who would take upon their lips the name of, of a Christian. So Paul, yet yeah, Paul paints a totally different picture of the Christian life. And he does it by applying the truth of his present life and experience. Um, and we see truly the pattern of the godly. Paul has got plain teaching here. If there was anyone that could have achieved a spiritual perfection in this life or in the next, it would have been the apostle. Um, the man who did phenomenal things with an earthly mind, spiritual mindset. And after 30 years, this is his assessment. I've not arrived. I'm not there. Sin still haunts me. Romans 7.15, he says, For what I'm doing, I don't understand. He's struggling with his own conscience. He says in verse 19, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I do. I practice. Verse 21, he says, I find then a law that is evil in present in me. The one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my heart, or in my members, in my body. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of the sin, of sin which is in my members. O wretched man, this is a conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This as well as many other scriptures call us to the warfare. And I mean, you could look at the, you know, the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, you're crazy. Like I've never seen anybody as devoted as you. You know, hopeful to Christian as he's dying there in the river of death and he's losing all hope. Hopeful looks and he says, but, 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 but what about this in your life? You know, we would have looked externally in the, at the Apostle Paul and said, there is no one who has sins like you. Paul, what is this you wrestle with? And he's wrestling with himself. And Paul illustrates for us in that, that really the godlier a person is, the greater their awareness of God is in His presence and their sensitivity to sin. You know, the, 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 the truly godly person, you might think, that as he gets and ages older and older, and he's 30 years in the faith like the apostle, you think, man, like he's going to sin less. And from an external perspective, no doubt he does. You know, no doubt God is working and laboring with the apostle Paul throughout his life to mortify sin even to the point that it is visible among the saints. That the church would look at him and say, this is, a, this is one of God's choice servants. We affirm him um, in, in the faith. We affirm him as much as we can, without omniscience, uh, even to the point that we would you know, ordain him as a minister of the gospel to the churches. Yet Paul looks at his own heart and he says, I, got, I struggle. You know, I struggle to do what is right. I struggle Longing to please God, there is this thing within me that just wrestles against the law um, that has been printed upon me, written upon my heart by God Himself. And, uh, and sometimes I despair. Sometimes I wonder. And if nothing else, I despair. Will God deliver me from this body of death? It haunts me so. 
Um, as I live within this carcass, within this natural flesh, you have the perfect within the imperfect. You have the spirit living within the fallenness of mankind. It is a struggle such that Paul often, it's in those moments that catapults him to, to, to looking to the coming of Christ. That day in which all pain and sorrow will be put to rest. Sin will be put to death and I will look at him and I will be like him and I, and I, I will be sinless. Paul often, as a result of his internal Internal um, examination and self-assessment, his soberness of mind, um, it causes him to look to Christ. At the same time, it causes him to run. What are the direct results of having a humble heart and recognizing that you are in Christ yet, yet not fully complete and, and that as you keep your eyes upon Him is that it will provoke you, it will provoke the godly to be engaged in that mortification of sin, in that, ad, um, that, that apprehending of Christ's nature, that taking off of the old man and putting on of the new. That really, now Paul illustrates for us that the godlier person is greater awareness of his sensitivity to the sin is. And although you may externally look and see the godliness from an external perspective, oftentimes, because that person is in the presence of Christ so often, and holiness is transforming them, that even the most minor of things will haunt their souls. Things that 20 years ago Paul would have thought was nothing, now... Um, today, as God brings it to light in His very presence, He sees it as a true offense to God. Um, and in some sense, it could deter Him, but as He puts His eyes on Christ, it causes Him to run with an ever-increasing awareness of our need from Him. It provokes Paul. So, the, 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 first of all, um, the, the, run that, the race that we run is a purifying race. You will never attain in this life to the perfection that you so desire. But God has designed it that way, to keep your eyes on Him. So He says to Christ Bible Church this morning, brother and sister, run after Him. And as you run after Him, the more pure you will become. But, 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 but do not despair. As in the more pure you become, the more wretched you'll see yourself, and the more gracious you'll see God. Continue to run. Continue. Secondly, it's a pressing pursuit. Uh, verse 12b, after we read that, previous phrase, but I press on. I want to call attention to, but I press on. Um, you may have a translation that says, I follow after. Carries with it the ideal of running after, following hard. It's describing, it's not describing a slow journey, a meandering person, a distracted spirit, an undisciplined soul, but a zealous pursuit, a strenuous attempt, an, aggre an aggressive endeavor. It was often used in secular literature to speak of hunters pursuing their prey. It's actually the same word in the, word in the immediate verses as Paul describes himself. He gives his testimony. You know what he says? He says, I'm a persecutor of the church. And that word persecutor there is the same word. And you could translate that, that he pressed upon the church. And it manifests itself in persecution. And you get the idea when you think about it like that. Just as Paul once zealously pursued Christians, uh, persecuting them out of a zeal for His God, even at the point of the execution at His hands and the beheading or the stoning. He now redirects that same energy to the cause of Christ. 
He's saying in the same way that I pressed in against Christianity, the same way that I woke up breathing hatred against them in Acts chapter 9, verse number 1, as much as I would, stand, I would get up in the morning and plan my day out to where I could persecute even the people of God known as Christians and plan to give every ounce of effort to that type of life, I now give it over to Christ. It has been redeemed. God has now given to me the light of the glorious gospel. Now that I'm to use every ounce of that strength in every corner of my life, I am to, with all effort and diligence and utmost discipline, give myself over to the cause of Christ. And I think the application is clear for us. The Christian life, listen, is not a passive endeavor. Paul says, you know, like it didn't come upon me um, necessarily. And maybe Christ met me there in my journey, and that was unique. But the Christian life, 30 years following, has been, has been the effort of my life. To please God has been at the utmost. That I have seen this race running after Christ, pleasing Him um, with everything that I have and everything that I am. The true greatness in the kingdom of God, um, we must recognize, is not something that happens flippantly. It's not something that happens on its own. It's not something that happens um, passively, but it happens. Holiness is a direct result of the pursuit of Christ. And it takes the effort of the Christian. That you should plan your day around Christ. If you think that you're going to wake up one day, you know, and you're just waiting for Christ to bless. You're looking for Him. You're just sitting there, letting go and letting God and waiting for this outpouring of the Spirit as you meditate upon Him. Um, that may happen. God, no doubt, has possibly done that in days past. But His normative um, work of holiness in the life of a believer and true growth in God's grace and true blessing comes out of an obedient pursuit of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul compares the Christian life to the Isthmian games. He says, Do you not know that all those who run a race run all, or all run? But who receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, he says. You know what the implication is? There is a way to run. And there is a way not to run. There is a way to obtain the prize. And there is a way not to. He goes on to say, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. We may translate that self-controlled in all things. Everyone who competes for the prize is self-controlled. That the Christian life is to be governed by a control of self as the Spirit of God is wrought and the fruit is born within that Christian. He is to take his life by the reins and seek to honor Christ um, in every area of life. We are to make every effort, even in Philippians chapter number 2, to work out our own salvation in fear and in trembling. Number three, it's a proper pursuit. It's a proper pursuit. The last portion of verse number 12. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. It is a proper pursuit. Listen, running zealously is not enough. Running zealously is not enough. A disciplined life is not enough. Remember, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 9 that the natural man exhibits some of those earthly of these earthly things that even spiritually we can draw from. 
the discipline of a runner, the, 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 um, the, the, the way that that runner is just wholesale um, given over to that thing, such that they would discipline their lives for that race. Paul says even a natural man has that in some sense. But, but just as the Apostle Paul was, was like that in his former life in a godless fashion, against God himself, kicking against the pricks, um, God is saying now you need to turn that, um, that zealous nature, that disciplined life for a particular reason. If we should be ashamed in some sense, that if the world can give themselves in such a manner for a corruptible crown, how much more should we? To that which is incorruptible. That's Paul's argument. So Paul continues to explain his pursuit. is not a pursuit of his own imaginations. But the very thing for which Christ saved him. Verse 12. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Paul, why do you run so hard, so long? Even at the expense of your health, wealth, and own well-being. Because this is what I was saved for. This is what I was apprehended for. Now, I, it is my desire in this life, Paul says, to lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ saved me. And what you see in this verse is the reality that it is Paul's desire to ground all of his efforts in a previous effort. And not an effort of his own. That all of his works are grounded in a previous work, the very work of Christ. That Paul's life is being built upon Christ's possession of him. And this is what he's saying. Christ apprehended me. He seized me. He took possession of me. He made me his own. And Paul is saying, before I ever, well, I will ever lay hold of Christ, pursue Christ, seek to attain him. Um, it must first be shaped by Christ's apprehension of me. I was pursued. I was laid hold of. I was sought after. I was seized. I was taken possession of for a purpose. And this is the very thing that I am running after. That the Christian life is not a life of one's imagination. You don't get to decide what is good, what is right, and what is holy. You don't get to decide of your own accord and your own creativity and how your life is to be formed and fashioned. Jesus Christ... Um, died to save a people for himself that they may live out the life that he saved them for. He said, what does that look like? 100%? Like, I don't know what it looks like in your life. Not, not, not in detail, not, not externally. But I can tell you this, that the ultimate purpose in your life, in this life now, is that you and I would be conformed to the very image of Christ. It is that we would be a holy people. Romans 8, 29, to become conformed to the image of His Son. Conformity to likeness of Christ is God's aim in all of our lives if we have been justified. That He justifies us, to sanctifies us, to sanctifies. He actually already mentioned that in Philippians chapter number 3 we looked at last week. So that we might have fellowship with Him. So that we might um, see Him face to face one day. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, read sometime. That justification produces a godliness in the people of, of God that, 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 that the gospel instructs us how to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul says to Titus, in the age that we live in now. That Jesus died to have a people for Himself distinct from this world that would display His character and nature to a lost and a dying world. Therefore, we are to pursue Him with that pursuit. We are to abandon all notion of self. 
And that our self is to be conformed to, to Christ's self. Number four, it is a precise pursuit. It is a precise pursuit. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. After refuting once again any notion that he's perfect or arrived, he says these words, but this is there's one thing that I do. And he introduces in those words a type of focus that is needed in the Christian life and is a type of focus that demands your total attention. Paul again gives us instructions with the illustration of the race and he's trying to draw our attention to something like our Olympic Games. And he's saying, you're to run your race with your eyes fixed upon the goal. And you, brother, you sister, you husband, you wife, you child, you little boy, little girl, you are to run your race insofar as you can with your eyes on Jesus Christ and you are not to be deterred. Not at all. What happens when a runner looks around? His attention is drawn to the runner next to him or he looks back, or he looks forward to something else, the runner will no doubt begin to go off course to stumble and trip because he's lost his focus. Christian and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, what happened, brother? He began to lose his focus. He took his eyes off of Christ. It caused him to despair. And his brother, hopeful, reminds him to look to the finish line. That's what the writer of Hebrews calls us to. He says, let us lay aside every weight, brothers and sisters, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That there is in this, this call for all of us to evaluate the totality of our lives and to identify every distraction that is carrying away our attention from the finish line and cast them aside. This one thing I do, Paul is saying, I have this singular focus in my life, and that is to honor Christ. And if anything stands in the path of that endeavor, I will lay it aside. We're reminded once again of, of uh, Solomon's word in Proverbs 4.25. Let your eyes look straight ahead. And your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your feet from evil. Listen, the world is filled with the panoply of inventions to take and to distract your minds, to grip your affections, to steal your hands away and your feet from the path which God has set, to take you away from the very reason for which you exist and the very reason for which Christ saved you. And you must be aware we must recognize the danger that is before us. And that danger, listen, lies not only in open external corruption. Some of the greatest evil lies in the borders of a good life. A moral life. Even a productive life. Our greatest threat, I think, in this church probably doesn't lie in the debauchery of the world. Although, listen, that's a real threat. You need to keep your eyes to yourself. You need to, you need to, you need to toe the line. You need to do whatever is necessary um, to... to, to to just stay focused upon Jesus Christ and to deter yourself from, from some of the most godless things in the world. But listen, 
my, my bigger worry for people like us, I mean, I've mentioned it before and I'll mention it again because I think it's such a great danger, is that our greatest threat may actually be found in lawful, recreational, and even seemingly moral things that we might consider to be good according to our standard. And in isolation or in tandem with Christ's word, they are good. They also may not be good things, but actually evil things. If they distract us from our pursuit of God in Christ. It's, it's, it's an easy thing to do for people to be conservative and even desire conservative things and to give themselves to the American dream or it's a quiet life and in doing so um, actually abandon Christ altogether. But, 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 but the gospel rarely goes to people like that Why? Because, because those people seem to be doing fine. You know, it's similar with my children. I struggle with giving my children the gospel sometimes. But you know who I give it the most to? The most rebellious. You know who I don't? That moral kid, man, that just wants to honor his mother and father. You know? And in that, you look and you think he's already got all that he needs. Thus, he, 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 he gets less of the gospel because it seems like the rebellious needs more. Yet at the same time, we recognize because I recognize my own heart. As a young moral kid seeking after a righteousness of my own, sought for the pleasure and the, and the, and the um, uh, acceptance and affirmation from other people. Now, those, are the, those are the ones that the gospel rarely goes to. But those are the God people that, that, that often need the gospel the most. Paul was a moral man prior to Christ according to the standard of the law. No man would have put a, a, a check, an X against anything. He stood against the, he could have stood toe to toe with any other Pharisee. When you looked at it, he would have said, among Jewish standards, that's a fine young man. And you could have looked at your young man and said, be like Paul. Not recognizing that Paul's heart is riddled with godlessness outside of Christ and he's fashioning according to a righteousness of his own, seeking to obtain a righteousness outside the law. And one of the dangers of a church like this and one of the dangers of a family like mine is to pursue good things outside of Christ and heaping up wonderful things, good things. Wasn't that really the greatest um, crime of the Pharisaical religion anyway. Right? That they had taken good things and turned them for themselves. Right? You turn the house of God or the temple of God into a den of thieves, a house of prayer. To utilize the means that God has given us to know Him and to use those for their own glory and their own gain. Yet within the context of that religion, it would have went unnoticed. May we notice this morning and take, to, take a, an examination of the totality of our lives. And not only examine and think, we're, and think we're, we've achieved something because we are different from the liberals. But in our conservatism, is it born out of a love for Christ? What am I doing around my home? Raising my children, discipling them, um, adding things to and taking things away. Is it so that they may know Christ and know Him more fully? Because if not... And they're keeping us from our personal relationship with Christ, with our walk with Him, from prayer, meditation, Bible study, these things which we are to know Him. Then listen, friends, that, that is who Pete, the author of Hebrews, is, is exhorting. Lay those things aside. Lay those things aside. 
so that you may look unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And really he characterizes here this one, and I'll give them to you quickly, um, two activities that characterize this um, precise pursuit. Number one, forgetting those things which are behind, and number two, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And not so many words. We've already mentioned those. But as a trained runner, a, tra- a runner is trained not to look back. There is a good time to look back. There is a good time to examine what you've done, to learn from it so that you may look forward. Um, but the, the point of the passage is, is that Paul is saying, forget those things which are look, that, that, that are behind you, that are paralyzing you, taking you away from that prize. Taking your eyes off the goal. Reach forward to those things which are ahead That word reaches forward describes a stretching a muscle to the limit. It pictures a runner straining every nerve, every muscle that he has, uh, keeping his eyes on the goal while stretching his hand forward that he might attain and grab that finish line. Number five, it's a prized pursuit. It's a prized pursuit. Verse 13 and 14. I press toward the goal, verse 14, for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I just want to draw your attention to that term goal. refers to a mark upon which we fix our gaze. The runner is to have a steady gaze upon the goal for the purpose of the prize. It is, the, the term refers to that which would be a target. It's that which is being aimed at. Uh, for, for, for the archer, for example, it would be the, 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 the center of the target, the bullseye. He's keeping his eyes on it. Um, he's got his eyes on everything else, but ultimately everything else he's got his eyes on, the wind and the, exter- and the circumstances surrounding the bullseye, it is so that he can gauge in how to make his, his shot. Maybe you know, two inch, or, you know, an inch to the left or an inch to the right. Um, he, he doesn't ignore everything else. He actually takes into account all of his circumstances for the purpose of actually hitting that goal. So what I'm saying today is not be blind to the world. You know, don't for, not, not that you're to forget everything else and just and pursue on towards Christ. But everything is to be viewed in 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 orient, Christ is to orient all of our vision. You know that that everything around. To hit the mark is to be utilized for that purpose of hitting the mark. In a similar way, the runner is to keep his goal, his eyes on the goal. There at the finish line. So that he, he stays. He knows how to position his feet. He doesn't have to look down and say, left foot forward, right foot forward. You know, he doesn't have to say, make, a, make a, two inches to the right or two inches to the left. He's trained and disciplined such that he, 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 in his mind, he's able to, to navigate his body and his run by virtue of looking at the goal. That's a, that's a strong runner. That's one that will win the prize. That's one that will grab the goal. He utilizes all the information he has concerning the surrounding of his mark. The moisture that's on the ground, the shoes that he's wearing, the people that are around him. He's not focused in on them as he's trying, as if he's trying to, to, to please them or to beat them. He's got his eyes on the goal and the goal uh, alone. The runner keeps it in his sight and he keeps it properly. I would say that this is the um, purpose of the passage. 
That the runner keeps the goal in sight as his motivation even to keep running. That when he begins to despair, the proximity of the goal and the prize at hand in his eyesight actually keeps him on his toes, striving after it with strength that he doesn't think he has left. There was a woman in the 20th century by the name of Florence Chadwick. She was a 20th century runner known for her long distance swimming. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. In 1952, she attempted to swim 26 miles between um, one island to the California coastline. After about 15 hours of a thick fog, um, she began to just doubt whether she was able to do it or not. Her mother was on a boat nearby because they were keeping her safe um, in case something went wrong. And uh, she swam for she, she told her, I don't think I can make it. Her mom says, keep going, you're almost there. Um, she swam for about another hour and then just gave up. They pulled her in. She said later, she found out later, that she was less than a mile from the shore. She said later, if I could have, if, if, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Actually, two months later, she tries it again. Same thick fog settles in, but she succeeds in reaching the goal. Why? Because she said that she kept the mental image of the shoreline in her mind as she swam. She, along with the runner, all keeps the goal in mind. The runner, the Christian runner, too, must keep the goal in mind. When we become deterred, we keep our sight on Him. We, too, to persevere, must keep our eyes on the shore. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is the high calling um, in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul longs to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. He desires to have Christ ever before Him. If we could but see Him, brothers and sisters. And isn't that the goal, really, of exhortation, one with a brother? You meet, you've lost a loved one, a little one, an older one, a mother or father. I, have, I never have any, I never know what to say. You know, you just, sometimes you just want to say something just because you think something needs to be said. And really, they already, they genuinely know it. You know, Christian, as he's despairing there in the depths of the river called death, giving up, it's not that he didn't know. It's oftentimes that he needs to be reminded to put his eyes back on the shore and back upon Christ. But in those moments, we generally pull people out of their despair by putting their eyes back upon Christ and Christ alone. That if they were just to see a bit of His glory, the light of His countenance, every ounce of strength they need to reach the goal, to withstand the persecution, to take on the affliction, to press on through the trials and tribulations would be there. The path to despair, and I'm, I'm convinced for the Christian that this is the only path to despair, is to take your eyes off of Christ. It's easy to blame other things. It's easy to look at the strength of the world, just the, the cunningness of the devil, and just the fallenness of the flesh, and to look and say, like I was going strong, and these things came in my life. But the truth is, is that none of those things would have any power over your soul if your eyes were on Christ. That our number one failure, maybe greatest sin, is not to trust Him in those moments and give in according to our weakness instead of relying upon Him in our confidence and dependence upon Him in His strength. And none of us are really exceptions to that reality. You know? 
John the Baptist in Luke chapter number 7. He's in prison. He's about to lose his life. I mean, this guy's the guy we look back on. And we say, there was a fiery preacher um, who held no punches. God used him in a mighty way. He was the forerunner um, of Christ. He was selected. Jesus Christ is going to say, there's none born among women like John. Um, and as he's there in prison, you read these words in Luke 7. John, calling on his disciples, on, on, on his disciples, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? After all of that, don't you know? You know what the Savior does? He doesn't rebuke him. The disciples go and he says, Go tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He says, tell them, look at the Messiah, he's here. John despairs even the, best, the greatest among us. Paul despairs even the greatest among us. Do we have any, do we have any inclination or any, any or are we deceived so much that we think that we will go throughout this life without any despair? The answer is no. But this is our constitution, church. This is what we're made of. And the design of the Christian life is that in that despair, and when we are weak, we are to, to run to Him. We are to look to Him. And God is to draw us back by the power of His Spirit through His Word. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we are to gird up by the wounds of our mind, be sober, and rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to keep our eyes upon the shore. 2 Corinthians 4.16, don't lose heart, he says. Why? Because he knows we're privy to that. Don't lose heart, he says. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we don't look at these things which are seen, he says, but, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not are eternal. He's saying we're perishing, brothers. And I know that you're weak. We are too. And when we wanted to give up even to the point of death, we could not. You know how you, you, you guard against that? You guard against the despair, the giving up, the throwing in the towel. You do it by, by, by putting your eyes on Christ, on things which are eternal. Take your eyes from the world for a moment and look and you'll recognize that this affliction that you, we receive here. And I mean, look who's writing it, Paul. Beaten within an inch of his life, probably dozens of times. Left for dead, abandoned by all. And he says that this, our light affliction, it's but for a moment. While we do not look at the things, but we look at the things which are not seen. You'll think that what's happening in your life is world crushing and greater than you could ever imagine. As long as you keep your eyes on that. But when you put your eyes on Christ, you realize that there is nothing in this world that I shouldn't abandon. There is nothing in this world that God, would not, that God could not put upon me that, that, that is more than He deserves. Every trial, every affliction, if it draws out the glory of Christ and the light of God that the world may see, then, then press on. And may the world press us for every ounce of glory that lies within our souls that the world may know. And may we, in those moments, press on to Jesus Christ. May we keep our eyes on the shore. 
that we might be faithful in those moments, beholding the glory of Christ in those moments. Number six, and finally, a perfect pursuit. A perfect pursuit. Verse 15 and 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are, you may have in your translation, if you have, I think, an NAS um, or something akin to that, perfect. It says, therefore, let us, as many as are perfect, the New King James says mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that which we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. You may, say, you may actually translate that, as I said, as many as are perfect. He's actually appealing there to the perfect. You may say, well, wait a minute. Didn't he just say that none of us are perfect, including himself as a pattern? And he did. So it could be one of two things that are going on here. Number one, it could be actually the apostle here with just a sarcastic wordplay, as he does with circumcision previously, um, utilizing the, the term dogs. It may be here that he's poking at the perfection and saying, do you want to know who the perfect are? Those who realize they're not perfect? He may be saying, let us who are perfect have this attitude about the impossibility of our perfection and our continual need for straining, exhausting effort in the Christian life. He may be making a, 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 a jab at the Judaizers. It could also be more than that, I think it is. It could be a sincere call for true believers to embrace maturity. Um, you see this word perfect here? It's not only used in the New Testament to speak of perfection as an absolute purity, um, but it's also, and probably more so, used to speak of those within the body of Christ that are actually mature in the faith, disciplined in character, and following hard after Christ. And he could be saying, those that are perfect in Christ are not perfect. But those that are mature in Christ are not absolutely perfect, but they are mature. And you see that 1 Corinthians 4.20, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, um, Hebrews 5.13-14, you see the use of that same word there. He says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That's that word there, perfect or mature. That is, those who by reason of use of their senses exercise to discern both good and evil. So who's he writing to? It could be that he is exhorting those at Philippi that are described as the mature. And Paul puts himself in that class as he says us. And he says, I am perfect. I am mature. And he assumes that there are many who are mature at Philippi. So what is the point of this? Paul's exhorting the mature to manifest that maturity by sharing precisely the same views and attitudes and disposition which he described in the previous verses. That's what he says in verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that which we had already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And what he is saying, he's saying that the, one of the great marks of a spiritually mature man is that he thinks like this. Thinks like I think. He goes on through the thoughts and the principles of spiritual biography and, and the mature man can make them his own. Whenever he gets to the end of it, the spiritual man, uh, the, the mature man, the, one, the man who is, is godly in Christ Jesus and has cultivated character, honoring of Christ, as in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 2, those demands of all men, um, 
You can get to the end of it without a prideful type of boastful, holier-than-thou type of mentality. You can say with a humbleness of heart, Amen. You know, that is my aim. That is my goal. That is how I run the race. Though not in degree is Paul. But Paul's perspective, yes. To attain that, that, that if you're going to run the race, he's saying you must be a mature man. You know? You don't see people out there winning the Olympic Games that have not matured in the discipline of the character that it takes. You just don't see it. You don't see a guy get up off the couch after he's sat there for two years and win the Olympic Games. You know That type of lifestyle does not um, gear itself towards winning any prize. But it is that man who has given himself over to years and years and years, decades of, of laying aside certain things and picking up other things, keeping his eye on the prize. That is the man who, who, who succeeds. That is the man who perseveres. That is the man who cannot be deterred. That is the man who, who, who finishes the race. And what he's saying is he's exhorting those who are mature to have this mind. And then I'm going to give you just a, a along with that, um, a word of consolation. As he says in verse number 15, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. I want to draw your attention just to that phrase. And this week I have grown to love that phrase. Because he calls upon the mature, but then he recognizes that the mature are not perfect. Right? There is another recognition there that those that are perfect are not perfect. And if, in, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it even to you. That there is an assumption that Paul assumes here that even among the mature, there will still be something that they don't have. There'll be some fine-tuning that is needed even in their spiritual misunderstanding and in their spiritual understanding. Therefore, Paul asserts with his utmost confidence that among those who manifest maturity of this perspective and, the, and who are on this pursuit, um, here in First or Philippians chapter number 3, that God will not leave such people in dark regarding those other spiritual realities. Don't you love that? You know? Remember with me quickly. Those that grow in Christ, the godly, will generally have a more sensitive conscience and it will be seared easier. They will carry with them a despair of their own sin greater 30 years out than three. Why? Because now they know God more. They've seen Christ. And they've seen in, in, in tandem with Christ or opposition to us their own sinful flesh. Well, it caused them to despair. You'll remember even last week, I, I gave you a bit of my own despair at the end of the, the service. How, how there is a desire in us and there should be in the godly to give Christ what He deserves. Yet at the same time, there's this tension in our own body that it will never be. The way that I want it to be is it's mixed with my own fallen nature. You know? It's like, do we ever actually preach a sermon that was, that was just, just what, he, what he deserved? Like from a fleshly perspective, no. But in Christ, yes. But there's this tension among the godly, even the mature, that in their lack thereof, Paul comes in, swoops in like a mother, like a father, and says, and, and comforts the mature. And he does it by saying, those things where you lack, know this. God promises to fill that up in your understanding. And he says, if anything you lack otherwise, 
I trust that God will reveal this even to you, that in your walk, know that He may not measure out everything that you need on that first day, but as you walk with Him, He will give you everything you need along the way. You can run. When you think there's no more strength in you, you can run because He is there. Imagine with me as I imagine this week with one of my little boys or my little girls, you know, who love their mommy and daddy. And imagine one of them coming and saying, Mommy, Daddy, like I'm, I'm striving to please you with everything. I know that I'm fallen and I know that I disobey at different times. My affections and my emotions, they get the best of me, you know. But I really do want to please you. I really do want to honor you. I really do want more than anything just to, 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 to honor you because God desires that and I desire that. Imagine for a moment how that mommy and that daddy would react. You imagine that they would be patient and long-suffering and come alongside and say, Honey, I recognize you're not to be perfect. And I know you're not going to be. And I thank you for coming forth and recognizing the humility of heart would just bring that mother or father to their knees. And they would kneel down alongside that little one or that little one and say, I'll do everything that I can, you know. And there's going to be discipline still there. There's going to be correction still there. There's going to be rebuke at times. But know this, that my love is there for you, that this is what I want for you too, honey. More than anything, more than anything, I want you to please your mother and father. I want you to please God. Imagine that father bowing down. Imagine the reaction that you would give. How much more? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, will he, your father in heaven, give to those who ask of his spirit? How much more to you, church, in your maturity yet your despair, do you recognize that God will give himself and just... A boundless abundance to those who seek after Him. That this has been a calm to my soul this week. You know? That in that tension, we too must remember, yes, we're fallen. And we're growing in Christ. And, and as, 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 there, as even our awareness of our sin grows even more. That makes us feel as if we are apart from Christ. We must too remember that our Heavenly Father has promised us more marvelous things than we could ever exhaust in this life. And that we are to trust Him in that pursuit and we are to keep our eyes on Christ. Can your Christian life be characterized by such a pursuit? Are you running the race, laying aside all encumbrances? For the joy that is set before you. In your pursuit and all of your imperfections. Do you despair because of those? As you have grown in holiness and closeness to Christ. Does your sin cause you to despair even more? Then I would implore you this morning. That you are to look to Christ. Keep your eyes up. Look to the shore. And know that in your lack of understanding. And in your misgivings. And even in your sin. As Christ with John. As Paul with Philippi, as a father with his children, as hopeful with Christian. You have a gracious high priest who can sympathize with your infirmities. And if you find him, you will find hope. And you will find strength to finish the race. So run, run with ardor, run with resolve, run with joy, run with reverence. 
Run some days with weakness. Run with your infirmities. Run when your leg hurts. Run when you're hungry. Run. The only way that you'll finish the race is by keeping your eyes on Christ. If I want to draw your attention to Him this morning, behold Him, behold him who loved the world to such an endeavor that He would give His life a ransom for many. You know, And if He's willing to do that, Romans chapter 8, how shall He not also freely give us all things? If He was willing to give us His Son, if you have the Son this morning, then you have all that you need in this life to accomplish and to persevere that for which you were saved. I pray this morning that that's your pursuit. Let us go to Him now. Father, we thank You and praise You. Just for the riches that we have in Christ, we thank You and praise You, Father. And we can trust according to Your promises that we are found in Him. We thank and praise You, Father, for the revelation of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for men and women like Hopeful to come alongside us in the midst of our despair, take our eyes off of our own sinful flesh, and put our sights back upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we thank you for that great plan of redemption that you wrought in eternity past. And we thank you, Father, most of all, for the fulfillment of that and the power of the Spirit to come alongside us to make those truths a reality. Father, I pray that you would just revive in us just a love, Father, for Christ. Show us Christ, Father, in a greater fashion. Father, in our despair, meet us in those holes and caves that we dig for ourselves and draw us out like you drew us out that one day, Father, when you seized us for all eternity by the power of your Son. Father, give us strength for the run. Father, take away the enticements of the world. Father, grip our affections such that our affections wane for any, anything else, thus that it is not a loss at all to lay aside any encumbrance. Father, but it is all more the gain. Father, may we be mature in Christ and think like this. Father, recognizing that if we abandon the world and cling to Christ, we've lost nothing at all. But we've gained all eternity. For this is to know, for this is eternal life, to know Him. To know Him, Father, is our desire. So give us more of him even now, Father, as we approach the table in the next few moments. Father, if I have failed at everything this morning, may the table not fail, Father, in presenting the body and blood of Christ in such a way that it preaches the gospel to saints and sinners alike, that they may know him. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Number 166, I run to Christ as a plea, my own heart, and my exhortation to you that in this moment, let us run to Christ. Let's do verse one and then we'll move to the table. Just one verse.
joy and sorrow meet. Amen. You can be seated. We'll now proceed with communion with a little instruction. As I said, we, this is the third Sunday. We generally try to regularly take um, at least once a month, and that's the third Sunday of, of the month, so that we are in keeping with our Lord's command to, to take the table. And we've prepared that before you. Um, but I always want to give a little bit of instruction and remind us as to what we're doing here. Um, the Lord's table is somewhat akin to the way we think about baptism, that these are ordinances that we carry out that are visible pictures of eternal realities. Baptism, Romans chapter 6, speaks of our um, spiritual death, burial, and resurrection. That as we are buried with Christ in baptism, we are raised to walk in newness of life. And that is to be administered to those who have came to Him by faith and repentance. At the same time, the table is a blessing to us. It is something that is not only one time or one experience in the Christian life, but it is that which we continually come back to. It is this renewal in the sense of covenant with God, this renewal of faith, of repentance and faith. As we keep coming back, feeding on Christ, it is emblematic, at least in part, of our feeding on Christ by faith perpetually for the rest of our lives. Thus it is something that the believer is to take part of from the time that they come to Christ and are baptized and even unto their death. Why? Because you will never, or you should never, um, you should never stop feeding on Christ. Um, Thus our Lord in places like Luke chapter 22, as well as the other Gospels, institutes His table. Um, He institutes it in such a way that He gives the bread and the cup um, the night before his death to his disciples saying, this is my body and this is my blood. It's a sermon that he'd actually preached previous that was hard to understand. Um, Why? Because we're not feeding literally on his flesh and we're not feeding literally on his blood. But it's emblematic of the reality that we are taking in Christ by faith. That's part of the, the, the terminology of in Christ. I am in Him and He is in me. John chapter number 15. That there is this root that is Christ and, and through Him life flows and there is a day which you were, you were grafted in Him, this old dead branch grafted in and life began and you are to feed on Him and to live in Him and that He is to flow through you such that you could look at that branch and say, that is the, the plant. You can look at the root and say, that is. There is sometimes no identifying differences or distinctive differences between the two. Now, body, Christ and His body are Christ. That we are in Him and He is in us. And we share in this one bread. We share in this cup, which is the body of Christ. Not only is there a personal relationship with Christ, but there's also a shared relationship with God's people in Christ. And this is emblematic of that. And that we come together as a body, as Christ Bible Church, feeding on Christ together. In unity, seeking after Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul gives us that command. There's also a warning there with that as well. So part of the instruction is is that this is for believers, just like baptism is. If you're here today outside of Christ, um, we don't want to upset you, and there's no offense. It's no no meaning to offend you, but we would ask that you not take. Um, Why? Because these these are covenant graces given to God's people. You know, some of our children will not take. And we'll have a conversation with them, I'm sure, today. You know, when will we be able to take communion? 
You know, it's, it's available to you, son. I'm not keeping it from you. You can take it when you come to, to Christ by faith and repentance. These blessings are to all who, uh, that everyone who is in Christ are to enjoy these tremendous blessings and one is the Lord's table. If you're here today and you're not sure, I'd encourage you not to take. If you're here today at a visitor and you're not sure, I'd encourage you not to take and we can talk about it afterwards and you'll be welcome the next time if you have a credible profession of faith. Um, there's also a warning in 1 Corinthians 11 against those that are within the body um, that have just open sin in their lives. You know, that they are to reconcile that, particularly ought with a brother or a sister. Uh, Matthew 20, uh, 5.24 gives indication of that. Leave your gift, therefore, um, before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come to the off, uh, come and offer your gift. That worship is stifled um, when sin is present. So there is this exhortation to the people of God to make all things right um, with one another particularly before they take so that we can share in this bread and unity in Christ. And when we do, yes, with reverence, and we too are also to do with the utmost joy. Why? Because it is our greatest um, privilege to feed on Christ. So let us feed on Him now. So what will happen is, is I'm going to sanitize my hands. I'll come down. The table's prepared. And I'll administer to those who come forward. Um, the way that we do this is, is that generally folks come down the middle, um, receive the bread and the cup, and then go back on the sides to their seat and wait. Um, at the same time, our brother's going to play number 343, the communion hymn. Um, while you wait, you may want to meditate upon the Lord. You may want to spend time in prayer as an individual with your family. Um, or you may want to just revel in the words of that song as we share together um, in Christ. And he's spiritually present with us in the bread and the cup. That bread which re represents Christ's body broken for you, but also um, that cup which represents Christ's blood shed for you. And we're to revel in these realities. So as our brother plays 343, uh, you come, we'll serve, and go back. I'll bless the bread and the cup, and then we'll take together, sing a hymn, and we'll be done. So go ahead and pray, brother.